0: Wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? Want to get the next episode even sooner? Well, after the show, head to watchnebula.com slash Radio. You'll get access to our original podcast ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping us to make even more amazing content. Just go to watchnebula.com slash LegalEagleRadio. It really helps us out. I love my brother.
1: But Ted Kaczynski's brother loved him too.
0: Oh, what? You thought that witnesses just showed up at trial having never practiced their testimony before? Oh, you sweet, sweet summer child. So I have a confession to make. This is not the first time I've seen this episode of Better Call Saul, called Chicanery. It's the episode that involves a bar disciplinary trial. And I saw this episode about a year ago. And ever since then, I haven't been able to think about anything else. If you've seen it, you know that there are questions about whether what Jimmy did is legal. And not only whether it's legal, but also whether the things that he does would actually work in this bar disciplinary hearing and whether the evidence that he generates would be admissible in court. I think I finally know how everything connects and whether it's accurate or not. So let's dig in to Better Call Saul, chicanery. Charles thinks
2: that Jimmy somehow took control of your documents while he was working on them at his home. He believes Jimmy transposed the address numbers. Transposed the numbers? How would he even do that? Charles contends that Jimmy took the documents pertaining to the Rosella branch and while Charles was indisposed, photocopied and doctored them. That's pretty Baroque.
0: Okay, so uh, this is the background to the episode and it is true that under the rules of professional conduct, if a lawyer realizes that a document has been fabricated, they have an obligation to tell the tribunal or the court that it has been doctored and come forward with that. Now, it's also just good client management. Kim is trying to do the right thing here. This is a PR issue for the client and it might reflect poorly on the client itself.
3: Okay, this is it. We can run without lights and mics. We'll collect all cell phones and hold them for the duration of your testimony.
0: Okay, so a uh, reminder here, this is not a normal trial. This is a disciplinary hearing by the bar. So it's a question of whether Jimmy gets to keep his uh, bar license. And of course, his brother, Chuck, it, claims to be uh, allergic to electricity. So they're turning off all the lights to accommodate him. This is probably gonna be more like an arbitration, less formal, but still has the force of law here. But look, I'm making assumptions here. I don't know exactly what the State Bar of New Mexico would be doing under these circumstances.
4: How you feeling, Chuck?
0: I'll muddle through. Because this is a lot to ask.
1: And if you're not up to it, just throwing this out there. Maybe you don't need to testify at all. No, I do. I'm the only person who can adequately explain the context of that tape. Otherwise, the defense will tear to shreds. It's already a solid case. We have Jimmy's statement from
4: the pre-prosecution diversion. There's my testimony and the private eyes. Maybe there's no need to put you through the ringer like this.
0: Okay, so a couple of things here. Number one, the tape here is that Chuck recorded Jimmy basically confessing to the crimes at issue here of doctoring the the evidence. So it shows one of the reasons why Jimmy should be disbarred. But another thing that's going on here is something that does actually happen, which is that you can often gild the lily in trial. Some witnesses are going to be better than others. And if you already have a rock solid case and you have a witness who doesn't play well on the stand, or there are other issues that are going to confuse the jury or the Judge, then it's best not to put that witness forward because it's just gonna detract from your already strong case. And of course, Chuck isn't listening to that and I don't think uh, his law partner can stop him here. But we know that this is also foreshadowing that uh, he is not the best witness to tell the story and bad things are going to happen because he refuses to not take the stand.
3: In the matter of James M. McGill, the State Bar intends to prove the following violations of the ethical code. 16-102, engaging in conduct the lawyer knows is criminal. Mr. McGill certainly knew that breaking down his brother's door was criminal behavior. 16-804, committing a criminal act that reflects adversely on the lawyer's honesty or trustworthiness as a lawyer. Any reasonable person would agree that assaulting another lawyer in his own home reflects badly on Mr. McGill's fitness as an attorney.
0: I think those are the actual rules of professional conduct. (laughs) I, I think that is also the case in New Mexico. Certainly the section numbers correspond with the ABA model professional codes. Not surprisingly, lawyers cannot engage in manifestly illegal conduct, and they can't engage in conduct that reflects on the honesty of themselves and the profession. So I think those are the actual things that Jimmy would be charged with in exactly this circumstance. That's great attention to detail right there.
3: Mr. McGill broke into his brother's home and destroyed an audio cassette which contained a recording of a conversation between himself and his brother, Charles McGill. We will show that this recording was evidence in an ongoing legal case. The State Bar believes that once we have presented the facts, the committee will agree that disbarment is warranted
0: for James McGill. Thank you very much. Okay, so assuming that this is an opening statement in a trial, and yeah, there are gonna be differences given that this is a bar disciplinary hearing, I would have liked to have heard more about the facts that the state or the state bar is going to prove here. They focused on the law here that is relevant, and that law appears to be spot on, and that probably makes sense in a disciplinary hearing, but at the same time, he is using the language of an opening statement that they are going to prove these things, that we're not arguing anything here, we're just giving an opening statement about what the facts and the law are going to be. And that's that's pretty accurate.
2: I'm Kim Wexler, co-counsel with James McGill for the defense. You've already read Mr. McGill's pre-prosecution statement. We don't dispute, he broke into his brother's house, an act he regrets deeply. But there is another side to this story, one not about calculation or ill intent, but about two brothers whose relationship after years of strain, finally broke. We believe that after you have the complete picture, you'll understand James McGill is an asset to our legal community. And he should remain a full member of it in good standing.
0: Okay, another super short, very surgical opening statement from Kim here. Again, I would've liked her to focus on more of the facts. They've opened the question about the relationship between the two brothers and how that colors this whole thing. How could this crime be turned from something that's clearly illegal into something that is understandable and forgivable because of the brother's relationship? Frankly, if Jimmy is on the stand, he can lay a lot of that foundation.
4: Mr. Alley, call your witness. Bang, bang, bang. Then he kicked down the door. Jimmy was very agitated. He was shouting. He demanded Charles turn over the evidence he'd been collecting.
2: Objection. We haven't established the tape is evidence of anything. The defense has only acknowledged it as a piece of property.
4: Uh, Allow me to rephrase.
0: I love that Hamlin is actually adding some drama because he is a seasoned trial lawyer. So he does know what works and what doesn't work on the stand. This objection that Kim has made, basically the judge will smack that down and say, look, I understand that this is the witness's opinion and I'll take it for what it's worth. And so they're not going to strike the testimony here. They're just gonna say, be careful, try not to editorialize or opine from the stand. And that's exactly what the, the witness then does. When you make an objection like this, if you really worry about the particular testimony, you have to ask the judge, or in this case, the the panel, to strike that testimony from the record. Otherwise it stays there and everyone is allowed to rely on that testimony. So anytime you see an objection, if they're not getting rid of the testimony that shouldn't have come out in the first place, it was a completely ineffectual act.
4: Jimmy demanded an audio cassette in Charles's possession, which Jimmy proceeded with the help of an iron fireplace implement to pry from Charles's desk. He then broke the cassette into pieces and went on to confront his brother.
0: What happened after the defendant smashed this tape? It's a great direct examination question. And on direct, you're not allowed to ask leading questions. You are on cross. And what happened next is perfect. You're just teeing it up for the witness to explain away everything that the witness can say. And when you have a great witness like Hamlin here, just let them do the talking.
2: What was your opinion of him then?
0: I thought he had a lot of get up and go. He was a hard worker.
2: You had a nickname for him, didn't you?
0: Charlie Hustle. <laughs> so, interesting Easter egg here. This is an illegal thing, but that is the nickname for Pete Rose, who was banned from baseball for betting on games that he was a player in and a, a manager of. It's an interesting nickname to give uh, Jimmy there.
2: Could you speak to the terms of Charles's leave of absence?
0: You know I
4: can't. It was an FMLA leave. Anything more is confidential.
0: Okay, uh, spot on. The FMLA is the Family and Medical Leave Act that allows people to take medical leave and the employer under most circumstances is required to allow them to come back to their job. There are some exceptions. If that job has been completely removed, for example, then there's no obligation to bring them back to that job. But that is exactly what would happen in a situation like this. And the employer is under an obligation not to disclose the reason for the employee taking the leave.
3: At this time, the state bar would like to enter exhibit five
2: into evidence, we ask that Charles McGill's recording be played. I'm respectfully renewing my objection. The probative value of playing this exhibit is outweighed by how prejudicial it is. All due respect to Miss Wexler, but the State Bar
3: feels this is fundamental to hear. We don't want to leave any question as to the intentions of both parties.
1: Miss Wexler, we already ruled this was fair game when we denied your motion to suppress. I'll add the rough and tumble of your client's conduct aside, we need to know whether one lawyer attempted to tamper with another's evidence.
0: Okay, this is great for a couple of reasons. Number one, the objection that Kim is making is a real objection under the rules of evidence. If a piece of evidence has a prejudicial value that outweighs its probative value, in other words, how relevant it is to the proceedings, then under certain circumstances, the judge or the tribunal can rule that it's inadmissible because it's just, say, too inflammatory or too prejudicial. But what's great about this and what you rarely ever see on TV is that these issues of very, very important pieces of evidence are almost never dealt with in the trial itself, there's almost always pre-trial briefing, and here there was pre-trial briefing. They moved to suppress it. That motion was denied, and so effectively they already dealt with this issue. And almost always on TV, there's this back and forth between these objections, and sometimes it's heard in the presence of the jury. In reality, in real life, it's done in a very dry way. You file a motion to either admit the evidence or to prevent it from coming in. The judge rules on it ahead of time, and you save everyone the heartache of going back and forth on the day of the trial. It's amazing. You never see that on TV. I
1: love my brother, but Ted Kaczynski's brother loved him too.
0: Oh, what, you thought that witnesses just showed up at trial having never practiced their testimony before? Oh, you sweet, sweet summer child.
5: Kim deserves Mesa Verde, not you, not HHM. She earned it and she needs it. I did it to help her. but. I- I honestly didn't think it would hurt you so bad. I thought you'd just say, oh crap, I made a mistake and go on with your life like a normal person. But oh no, wishful thinking.
0: All right, so obviously this raises huge ethical implications for Kim representing Jimmy here. I'm gonna assume that representing someone in a bar disciplinary hearing is basically an act of a lawyer, and they're bound by the same ethical issues. And she's a material witness here. She is one of the reasons that this whole situation has come to fruition. It's a little crazy for her to be counsel here, despite the fact that she's a law partner with Jimmy. And maybe especially because they're law partners, it's pretty improper for her to be counsel for Jimmy in this particular situation.
1: Jimmy, you do realize you just confessed to a felony? Yes, But you feel
5: better, right? Besides, it's your word against mine.
0: So yeah, look, tampering with evidence to try and obstruct an investigation or to interfere with another court case Clearly, clearly illegal. And New Mexico is a one-party consent state. So it's probably okay for Chuck to have uh, recorded this conversation in which he is participating. Bad evidence for Jimmy.
1: Excuse me. Sorry, it's yours.
0: Huel, everyone loves Huel, Hule is the best. Uh, So we know that he has bumped into Charles. He has, of course, planted something on Charles' person that will become relevant later on. This is also incredibly relevant for the crazy legal analysis that I had to do to figure out what's going on here because number one, he has made physical contact with Charles, uh, which raises the issue of whether that has its own crime of uh, assault and or battery, and whether planting something on Chuck's person can be admissible evidence. We'll get to that in a second, but those are the kinds of legal issues that we have to think about here, and it's gonna spiral out of control really fast.
1: I had a suspicion my brother had tampered with documents in a case I was working on. Now, why would he do that? Doesn't sound particularly brotherly. I believe it was his hope that the tainted documents would cause the client to become disillusioned with my representation and return to their previous attorney.
0: Object, Wexler, object. Which, uh, yeah, you're not gonna be allowed to speculate as to the kind of motive uh, or internal thinking that the Jimmy's going on here.
1: Which I should note is precisely what happened. Objection. Finally. Saying Ms. Wexler knew what Jimmy was doing or had any involvement, I'm only stating that it happened. But
0: the witness can't keep testifying if you're objecting to the, the court here. This happens a lot in TV. If there's an objection, the witness has to stop. And if you win that objection, you need to go back and say that you move that the testimony be stricken from the record. Otherwise, it's on the record and it happened. My brother, whatever
1: else can be said of him, can be quite clever. Did an excellent job of covering his tracks.
2: Objection, the witness has admitted there's no corroborating evidence this supposed crime even occurred. I'd like to hear what he has to say.
0: Okay, this is called a speaking objection. And the problem with that is that while some of the rationale that she's using makes sense, she's also not giving them a reason under the rules of evidence why they cannot hear this evidence. And the reason is it's pure speculation. He has admitted that he doesn't have corroborating evidence. You're not allowed to testify to that. And the the judge (laughs) shouldn't be saying, I want to hear what he says. Now, again, this is something that's like a bench trial, something that's like an arbitration. You see it all the time. They say, look, I'll hear the testimony. I understand that he might be purely speculating, but I want to hear that speculation, it might be based on something. And I am smart enough to know whether I can trust that testimony or not. You see that a lot in arbitrations or bench trials.
3: All due respect, but but you do sound
1: somewhat unhinged on the recording. Yes, I understand that. But what you heard was theater, a performance, play acting. I exaggerated the symptoms of my disease to extract the truth.
0: I don't think that that's relevant here. They are kind of opening the door to Jimmy and Kim here to probe the veracity of it. That's a dangerous gamble.
3: Can we talk about your disease for a moment?
0: I'd like everybody here to be on the
1: same page about it. Of course. It is sometimes referred to as EHS, electromagnetic hypersensitivity. I describe it as an acute allergy to electromagnetism. It's not a common condition, is it? I know it sounds strange, I do. But 30 years ago, no one had heard of peanut allergies.
0: Okay, so this is really important because generally in the law there is this idea that you take your victim as you find them. And often this is lumped in with the eggshell skull theory where let's say you punch someone and they happen to suffer from a bone disease that gives them brittle bones or a skull that is so thin as to be like an eggshell. Well, the mere fact that you didn't intend for some horrific injury to come as a result of a, a mere punch, given the special circumstances of the victim, it doesn't matter. You take take your victim as you find them. And that's really relevant to some things that we're gonna get to because Chuck believes he has this disease. And in some sense that matters whether that disease is true or not. In other senses, it matters only whether Chuck believes he has this disease or not, and his subjective reaction to it. That'll become relevant in just a second. I love my brother.
1: There's nothing malicious in Jimmy. He has a way of doing the worst things for reasons that sound almost noble. But what I know for sure is that the law is too important to be toyed with. It's mankind's greatest achievement. The rule of law, the idea that no matter who you are, your actions have consequences.
5: Preach, baby, preach! I have some questions. Like, the recorder, it must have hurt like hell for you to touch that. There was a degree of discomfort, that's true. And where did you hide it? I mean, the sound's pretty clear, so it wasn't in the couch cushions, was it?
1: tucked under a space blanket, out of sight. Wow.
5: So there's no chance I would see it. Not with the state your place was in. Isn't that right? I suppose. Would you like to set the scene for the disciplinary committee, tell them you know, what your house looked like at the time of the recording?
0: So Jimmy's asking a combination of open-ended and leading questions. And I remind you that on cross-examination, you are allowed to ask leading questions. It's only on direct examination where you're not allowed to ask leading questions.
1: I covered most of the walls with foil scrim craft insulation. I also hung a number of space blankets, compact mylar sheets. They insulate and protect against mild electromagnetic radiation.
5: All right, so shiny insulation and space blankets all over the walls and the ceiling. It was like
0: being inside of a disco ball. Do you have a point? Okay. Now Jimmy is just flat out testifying. He turns to the tribunal and he just starts saying what his own experience is like. You can't do that on a cross-examination. He's a witness here. If he wants to take the stand and testify as to what he saw and experienced, he's gonna be able to do that.
1: Usually it's a perfectly normal house.
0: You think your house is
5: normal? Can I call your attention to exhibit nine? This is your house, right?
1: Yes.
0: So Exposed wires? There's a camp stove. Okay, so putting aside the fact that Jimmy is basically testifying right now, I find this hilarious because every trial has these exhibit binders. And again, you're gonna take care of most of the evidentiary stuff ahead of time, so it's pretty normal for all of the exhibits to already be in evidence. And we tend to carry these boxes of white three ring binders or black three ring binders containing everything. If he'd planned this out, he probably would have blown up these pictures on like a three by five presentation board, but spur of the moment, he wants to confront the witness with these trial exhibits, totally spot on. Hilarious, the attention to detail here. And on top of that, yes, he's he's sort of testifying, but he would be able to make the exact same points by simply saying, is this your house? Do you recognize this as a true and correct picture of what was in your house? And is it true, as depicted in this photo, that there was exposed wire? Is it true that blah, blah, blah? You just simply confront the witness to verify all of these things, so you get the same effect of being able to show the tribunal all of these, these photos. So yeah, he's testifying here, but in reality, what he would realistically do with this witness is not that far off. It's great.
5: Right, so with the lights out, you don't feel them?
1: If the current's not flowing, no.
5: Well, sorry about the exit signs. I guess they couldn't kill those
1: for you. Well, they're not drawing much current, and they're far away. (sighs) Intensity drops off with distance per the inverse square law.
5: Okay. whoa, inverse square? I'm not a physicist. Could you dumb that down a shade for me?
1: The farther away it is, the stronger the source needs to be to have an effect.
0: All right, Huel is back. That'll become relevant in just a second. Now things are about to get good. Oh my God, I think I figured it out. I can't wait to to untangle this web. Again, I might've seen this before. (laughs) Got
5: it, got it. So if I had a small battery safe from a watch or something and I got it close to you, close to your skin, you'd know. I would feel it, yes.
0: Okay, laying the foundation that a battery is something that he would feel and he would react to. Can you feel more current
5: coming from any particular direction right now? From the back wall or, uh, from over there or up through the floor? Can you tell us where the nearest
1: source is, right now? Jimmy, do you have something in your pocket? No,
5: he laid the trap!
2: He laid the trap!
5: Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. My cell phone. From this distance, you should feel it, and you don't. Mr. McGill, you are warned to leave your
0: electronics outside. It's a trap! It's a trap! So starting out here, I don't think that there's any issue with him using his cell phone as a prop. You use demonstratives in trial all the time. You know, you can generate testimony through the witness, on the stand. And the fact that it's his own cell phone, it's unorthodox, sure, but so is this medical ailment. And in reality, you can get a medical examination uh, through discovery if this was an actual court case. So I think so far, so good. This is akin to in My Cousin Vinny, when Joe Pesci is holding up two fingers to test the eyesight of a witness.
4: How many fingers am I holding up now? Four.
0: I don't think there's anything untoward going on so far. What do I have to do to prove it to you?
5: I don't know, Chuck. Could you reach into your breast pocket and tell me what's there? (laughs) What now? Can you you tell tell the the court what that that was? was? It's a battery. It was on him the whole time. Do you recognize that man in back? His name is Huel Babineau. He's on our witness list. You bumped into him in the stairway. He'll testify he planted this fully charged battery on you over an hour and a half ago. hour and 43 minutes. An hour and
0: 43 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Babineau. And you felt nothing. Here's where things get Really, really dicey. Where do I start? I'm just I'm just so excited. There's so much stuff going on here. First of all, uh, the issue of Jimmy testifying. Okay, yeah, all right. So Jimmy is sort of testifying here, but I think what you would assume would happen is that the state would object. And what Jimmy's actually doing is he isn't testifying so much as he's making a proffer. He actually says, this is Huel Babineau. Uh, he will testify, or he, he says something uh, perspective in there. He's saying, I'm not offering it, this into evidence right now, but in the future, this person will testify to this, and here's why it's relevant. Lawyers do proffers all the time, often in response to an objection of relevance. So yes, he is technically testifying himself, but he's only testifying into the things that this witness, Huel Babino will testify to in the future. And I'm sure if this disciplinary hearing goes forward, he will make Hugh Babineau take the stand and testify to all the things that have happened right now. So it's conflating a couple of things together, but it's not that crazy. It's a proffer. But now is the secondary issue of, did Jimmy commit a crime to elicit this testimony? I think there's an argument that he did because there is the crime of battery, which is also a tort, where you engage in some sort of harmful or offensive contact to another person. Now, harmful or offensive doesn't just mean like punching someone or stabbing them with a, with a knife, but it also includes things that are singularly offensive only to the victim themselves. Contact that's highly offensive to another's unusually sensitive sense, and the actor knows that that contact is highly offensive to them. So when you're dealing with someone that is incredibly unique, the assailant has to know that it's highly offensive to them. Arguably, that's the case here. Jimmy knows that Chuck feels this way, regardless of whether it's true or not that he actually suffers from this condition. So in the restatement of torts, for example, they give a couple of ex- of examples of things like this. Serving pork to someone who doesn't eat pork for religious reasons. It's not gonna hurt them, but it might be highly offensive to them. Or they give another example of someone who is deathly afraid of butterflies. Well, the butterfly is not going to hurt them, but if you put a butterfly on someone and they freak out, well, you've just committed battery. If you know that they are terrified of butterflies. And it generally doesn't matter if the victim didn't know about it ahead of time. The damage is done when they find out about it. The person who ate pork didn't know that they ate pork, but if you tell them about it, well, then they have suffered the emotional distress of the battery, even if it's after the fact. On the other hand, there is an argument that this malady is not a real thing. And therefore he didn't suffer anything and a reasonable person wouldn't suffer that either. I don't know, I could go either way on this. And as for whether it's admissible in front of this tribunal, remember this is more informal than a normal court, but man, this one is still a tough one because we don't want defense attorneys accosting a material witness and planting things on them for what is obviously highly probative evidence. Such a great scene, I absolutely still love it, regardless of of whether it would work or not. It's just, it's just really good. (laughs) You think this is bad? This, this chicanery? He's
1: done worse. That's Billboard. Are you telling me that a man just happens to fall like that? No, he orchestrated it. Jimmy, he
0: defecated through a sunroof. Who doesn't love a great Perry Mason moment? This episode is just so good. So now I have to give this episode of Better Call Saul a grade for legal realism. On the one hand, they're taking some liberties here. You've got people testifying, you have people engaging in things that normally wouldn't be allowed in trial. But on the other hand, this is a disciplinary hearing. Things are gonna be more informal and they really paid very close attention to the actual ethical rules for lawyers and things like FMLA. And they were making reasonably good objections. Even though this caused me to pull my hair out for months, I think this is one of the greatest episodes of TV lawyering of all time and I'm gonna give it an A minus this kind of chicanery as a real lawyer. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.